Thank you very much, Professor Stallworthy. Can you hear? Yeah. <clears throat> A title like War and Poetry is enough to reduce any prospective lecturer to paralysis. Um, there was a period when I was trying to prepare this talk in which I seriously thought that I would, I would take 50 themes and give to each theme one paragraph lasting one minute. Um, I think you would have enjoyed this far more than the lecture you're going to hear, even though I will not be speaking in Latin. You would have been entertained, I think. Consider the kind of theme I could have, I could have touched on. The Iliad as understood by 20th century writers with particular reference to Simone Weil, a great essay on the Iliad or the Poem of Force, and the versions of Christopher Logue, which I think are, are very fine. Uh, 17th century English approaches to the Aeneid, uh, culminating in a discussion of the poetry and politics of Tony Harrison, who is indeed a very good classical scholar and who has written a very fine essay on 17th century English translations of Virgil. English poetic responses to the Thirty Years' War, starting with John Donne's hymn of the author's last going into Germany, going on through Fanshawe's Great Ode, and finishing with Thomas Cairo and the Caroline Masks. Uh, Walt Whitman and Herman Melville as poets of the American Civil War. Uh, Thomas Hardy and A.E. Hausman as poets affected by the Boer War. Keith Douglas, 1920-1944, in relation to Isaac Rosenberg, 1890-1918, whom he so greatly admired. Why not poetry of the French Resistance, 1940-44? Uh, as I say, I think I could have provided you um, with, with a lively 50 minutes, um, with one paragraph given to, to 50 of topics floated in that kind of way. Uh, I'm afraid I've been very timid, and I, I have settled for a kind of middle way, which is always a mistake. In politics, people say one should keep to the middle way, but I think in lecturing it's fatal. Um, <laughs> And your worst fears will be realized uh, by the time I've got to the end of the first page of my script, which I, now, which I now begin. I begin with two quotations from Robert Graves's book, Poetic Unreason, published in 1925. Since 1918, he says, I had been deeply interested in Freudian psychoanalysis as being a possible corrective for my shell shock which had just returned, and I was thinking of putting myself under treatment. And again, he says, the late Dr. W.H.R. Rivers, in his Conflict and Dream, supports the main contentions of this book, that is the book Poetic Unreason of 1925. Um, Rivers, as I'm sure you know, Rivers, the anthropologist and psychologist, had been on the staff of Craig Lockett Military Hospital, where both Graves and Owen received treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, as it is now called. I have to say that the clinical assistance that Rivers was able to offer Graves in the attempt to come to grips with his creative process has always seemed to me neither insightful nor helpful what matters is that Graves conceived it to be so. Moreover, the fundamental premise in Graves' approach that poetry is in some way intimately involved in and expressive of psychic shock, mental conflict, is one that over the years uh, has resulted in some significant poetry being written, and not only by Graves. 
It's a position I'm willing to explore in the sense that one may be said to explore or mine a stratum of possibility that might finally yield some distinct and positive result. Positive in the sense of demonstrable, not of looking on the bright side of life. Graves developed the notion of shocked and conflicted feelings into one of semantic and syntactic tension, conflict, and ambiguity in a once widely known analysis of a Shakespeare sonnet, a form of analysis which predated William Empson's Seven Types of Ambiguity, a matter which Empson briefly acknowledged in that book. Here the issue becomes a little complicated. Uh, bear with me as my American dentist used to say before starting on root canal work, Empson's acknowledgement was to a book of joint authorship, Laura Ridings and Robert Graves's A Survey of Modernist Poetry, 1927, rather than to Graves's own on English poetry being an irregular approach to the psychology of this art of 1922 or to his Poetic Unreason of 1925. The tortuous and at times acrimonious record of the business can be followed in pages 424 to 436 of selected letters of William Empson, edited Haffenden, Oxford, 2006. Though Laura Riding, I think one can say undoubtedly, put extensive refinement and development into the initial perception and in a real sense made it her own intellectual property, a property which, like Schoenberg, with his 12-note system, she most jealously guarded. The fact cannot be disputed that in 1922, in his book on English poetry, some four years before he was aware of writing or her work, Graves had written of John Webster's line in The Duchess of Malfi, "'Cover her face, mine eyes dazzle, she died young,' that the word dazzle does duty for two emotions at once, sun-dazzled awe at loveliness, tear-dazzled grief for early death. And again, you can uh, find that. I say this for scruple's sake. The information is given you in the letters of William Empson, though in fairness to myself, it is something that I had read independently in Graves' own book 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, not at Oxford, though. Uh, at Oxford, I read Beowulf and Jane Austen. <laughs> the significance of this preliminary excursus to my main theme is, I trust, apparent. It is that, notwithstanding the three-person contention about the matter, and notwithstanding later refinements of process by Laura Riding, a critical method of analysis, overwhelmingly persuasive through the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, rawly originated in an ex-soldier poet's post-traumatic stress disorder, his clinical treatment, and his insight that there seems a profound connection between stress in the clinical sense and denotative and connotative stress in poetic rendering and structuring. But for a couple of qualifying factors supplied by the poet himself, I think Rivers' ideas could have misled Graves into a path lacking exit into the desired result, which is an understanding of poetic process. What Rivers writes in his Conflict and Dream is, I believe that only when poets and other artists have set to work to analyze the products of their artistry can we expect to understand the real mechanism of artistic production. Our reception of this idea, our sense of its creative applicability beyond the range of the therapeutic, depends on what we suppose Rivers to mean by analyze and by mechanism, and by a slightly later phrase of his, the immediate unelaborated product of the poet's mind. And further, it depends on what we suppose graves to mean 
when he writes in 1925, poetry presupposes a conflict in the poet's mind of which this poem is the expression or the expression of its solution. Now I sense that Rivers means by real mechanism of artistic production the real individual psychosis as opposed to broad cultural assumptions concerning the whole field of tacit pledges with which Henry James engaged in his novels and prefaces. And it seems further that Rivers' word analyze means the application of Freudian psychoanalytical methods. That is, Rivers is concerned to take over or to bring over into Graves' post-war life as a poet and self-critic the procedures developed by Rivers at Craig Lockett while treating Graves and many other shell-shocked young officers. It was an officer's only establishment. Had Graves kept strictly to Rivers' field of exploration and reference, I believe that he would have found himself in a creative cul-de-sac. Fortunately, and still without assistance from Laura Riding, this was prior to 1926, uh, he hit upon the notions of nucleus and embodiment. And in a key chapter of Poetic Unreason, 1925, Secondary Elaboration, as it's called, he examines several drafts of one of his recent poems and draws from them the resume of creative method. I quote, the poet, uh, he, he means himself, he's speaking clinically of himself. The poet became aware of a certain nucleus a group of words embodying some phase of a conflict with which he was at the time concerned and which suggested the outline of a poem. This is still perilously poised. If all we are to perceive from analysis is a poem's outline, I do not see any great benefit accruing to our understanding of how a poem comes to be itself. How the position shifts for Graves from theoretic analytic nucleus to what is in a broad sense a semantic nucleus is revealed, or so it seems to me, on page 19 of that same book, Poetic Unreason of 1925. At this point, Graves ridicules the emotive pre-conscription recruiting poster your king and country need you, by recording that the slogan became, I quote, a trench joke for pulling corpses out of sump pits by their boots. This observation is so precisely paralleled in a book which appeared five years later, Brophy and Partridge's annotated anthology, Songs and Slang of the British Soldier, 1914-1918, that I would find it extraordinary if I were told that these two authors were unacquainted with Graves' book. I mean, I think they must have known it. On pages 193-194 of their first edition, we find, but as time went on, the soldier began to produce his own sayings, even as he produced his own songs, to help him through his cataclysmic days. In his first disillusionment, he turned and picked up some of the fine phrases which had stirred his heart into the patriotic desire to enlist. Kitchener wants you became a method of telling a man he was selected for some especially disgusting, arduous, or dangerous duty. Remember Belgium was heard with ironic and bitter intonations in the muddy wastes of the Ypres salient. Brophy and Partridge also assess the widespread use of obscenities by the fighting troops, in particular the word fucking and related sexual obscenities. Their most telling observation, telling for me, that is, for ideas I wish to develop, is this on page 17 of the first edition. The word, uh, that's the word fucking, became so common that an effective way for the soldier to express emotion was to omit it. 
Thus, if a sergeant said, get your fucking rifles, it was understood as a matter of routine. But if he said, get your rifles, there was an immediate implication of urgency and danger. Now, the passage, as I've just read it, does not stand thus in Brophy and Partridge's book. The word fucking does not appear anywhere in it, though dashing does, together with several sentences of leaden periphrasis culminating in the statement, the adjectival form was the commonest, but the root word is a verb meaning to copulate. The periphrastic way is also followed for a female genital organ and the filthiest in origin of all three words, which, of course, as you will have realized, is the word bugger. I must not be sidetracked into discussing the tragicomic processes attending the progress of Ulysses and Lady Chatterley's lover, roughly speaking contemporaneous with songs and slang of the British soldier, except to remark on the virtually impossible barriers that linguistic censorship imposed on Brophy's and Partridge's thesis, because they wished to indicate the impact of the war, which they call an experience so widespread and deep sunk, on the subsequent weighting and texturing of the English language, which they refer to as probably the most imaginative and sensuously exact language of all, it is continually unfolding springs of metaphor within itself, but they cannot print the words that show the, as were the sensitive developments of this. And I would even suggest that seen in the light of these remarks, what one can draw from Henry James's pre-war prefaces is likely to be of as much use to the poet's comprehension of stress as are the clinical writings of W.H.R. Rivers, greatly though I esteem him. I'm not saying that we are better as a society for having been made legally entitled to use gross sexual obscenities without fear of prosecution. Um, what we are bound by now, and here admittedly I become grossly contentious, is our living within an amorphous power system of the kind that William Morris, speaking in 1883 in this university, called anarchical plutocracy, against which force of degradation Yeats's definition of the gyre, or the definition of the vortex, as propounded by Henri Gaudier Brzeska and Wyndham Lewis, could be called systematic attempts to convert negative into positive agglomerations. In the conduct of this particular argument, that is my argument here and now in this present lecture, I propose citing a sentence from yet another lecture originally delivered in this university by A.C. Bradley during his tenure of the chair of poetry in the first decade of the 20th century. He says, he writes, the essentially tragic fact is the self-division and intestinal warfare of the ethical substance, not so much the war of good with evil as the war of good with good. If one were to attempt, it, it would be, I concede, a somewhat fanciful exercise, if one were to attempt a three-dimensional model of Bradley's statement, it would appear, according to my insistence, as an austerely incised granite block, not unlike certain installations in Ian Hamilton Finlay's famous garden, or not unlike certain types of war memorial. If one tried to find a three-dimensional representation of what William Morris means by anarchical plutocracy, even a gyre or a vortex would have too definite a shape, would seem, so to speak, too shapely. Bradley, it seems to me, sees the tragic fact as a fact, stony in its obduracy, shaped and mortised into a kind of mausoleum of the decencies in which the keystone of the arch is a philosophical abstract from Hegel. I must emphasize that I intend nothing detrimental in so describing it, 
In my own pattern of the symbolic verities, the Bradley takes equal place with Yeats's gyres and with the vortex. I would describe in a very similar, in a very similar terms David Jones's magnificent dedication to In Parenthesis, 1937, his book of oratory recounting the events of one day in the Battle of the Somme, a dedication which both reads and appears on the page printed in same-size capitals as if intended to be incised in stone. I do, however, sense that two distinct, though I would hope complementary, memory systems are implied by placing in juxtaposition my own notion of the incised block, A.C. Bradley and David Jones, and the vortex, Louis Gaudiorgesca. With the first, I would claim that we encounter memory as a relatively stable entity, a form of intrinsic value that remains static, a constancy. With the second, it, memory, could be subject to distortion by forces of cultural gravity, wrenching, unstable. If the memorial dedication to in parenthesis stands for the first, and I admit that I am pay, playing fast and loose with your imaginative tolerance, the second is represented by sections of Wyndham Lewis's sole volume of poetry, One Way Song, 1933. The form of poetry that I might initially and rashly consider most necessary today, most likely to endure the frightful gravitational field of present chaos, might preserve the most telling features of both in parenthesis and one-way song, though it is possible that in suggesting this I overestimate the effectiveness of both works. Since we are discussing poetics directly and financial degradation indirectly, I am able to say that in my view, Bradley's vision of internecine conflict still has great value. I can't think that the struggle between rival aesthetics, unlike the war between rival ideologies, or as between residual democracy and rampant plutocracy, can ever be describable as anything other than the war of good with good. Admittedly, my optimism or afflicted meliorism is put under considerable strain by W.B. Yeats's editing of the Oxford Book of Modern Verse in 1935-36. This, as you know, is the volume from which Wilfred Owen was excluded by editorial fiat on the grounds that passive suffering is not a theme for poetry. In a letter to Dorothy Wellesley, whom he believed or affected to believe a major poet, Yeats amplified his motive for the considerable animus he displayed. When I excluded Wilfred Owen, whom I consider unworthy of a poet's corner of a country newspaper, I did not know I was excluding a revered sandwich-board man of the revolution However, if I hadn't known it, I would have excluded him just the same. <laughs> he is all blood, dirt, and sucked sugar stick. Look at the selection in Faber's anthology called Poets, Bards, A Girl, A Maid, and talks about titanic wars. There is every excuse for him, but none for those who like him. Revered sandwich-board man of the revolution in this particular context of Yeats' moral mercator means someone who can be employed to advertise lefty pacifism. All in all, for Yeats and indeed the Yeats family, revolution was a bad thing to be kept distinct from such occurrences as rebellion and uprising, which were by and large, although painful to be encouraged, particularly when Irish. Thus we have Elizabeth Corbett Yeats's panache, her swagger of a colophon, to the Kuala Press edition of the Spawn Yeats' Certain Noble Plays of Japan. Finished on the 20th day of July in the year of the Sinn Féin Rising, 1916. It certainly has style, but my argument 
uh, is tending to be suspicious of style. The distinction between words like revolution and rebellion as I see it, though you may say I see only what I wish to see, is not entirely unrelated to that sliver of difference between get your fucking rifles, which implies boredom and routine, and get your rifles, which suggests an imminent encounter with terror and death. I am attempting to say that words are warps of signification, embodying passions, and that poems must effectively deal with these as well as with the hostile passions that specifically target them. I am attempting to say that words are warps of signification, embodying passions, and that poems must effectively deal with these as well as with the hostile passions that specifically target them. Yeats thought historically in terms of gyres. As a literary critic, he possessed a goss-like blockishness, as his introduction to his Oxford anthology reveals Passim. I read Gerard Hopkins with great difficulty. I cannot keep my attention fixed for more than a few minutes. I suspect a bias born when I began to think. Even so, he is not wholly mistaken in what he says about Owen. Only the stuttering rifle's rapid rattle can patter out their hasty orisons. This is an atrociously bad couple of lines, dire in its note of pert applicability. The very last thing Owen needed to do at this point was onomatopoeia and alliteration. Uh, I cite Stravinsky's catty remark about Benjamin Britten's orchestration in War Requiem, his setting of words from Wilfred Owen and from the Latin Mass for the Dead. The drums of time sings the baritone, and boom, 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 go the obedient timpani. Stravinsky has a phrase for what Britain does here and elsewhere in that setting of Owen, a bounteous presence of literalisms. In providing his own presence of literalisms in these lines, Owen gave certain hostages to ill fortune, as all attempts in poetry, which intentionally or not, seem placed to catch the lazy eye or lazy ear, can be accused of doing. Philosophically, Owen is perfect. He stands on the near side of a rain rainbow arch, the further side of which touches ground in Wordsworth's Michael. There is a comfort in the strength of love to make a thing endurable, which else would break the heart. Old Michael found it so. This grand sentiment is also the happy burden of those final letters from young Owen to his mother, just prior to the attempt to launch an attack across the Sambre Canal in early November 1918, in which attempt he died. His poems, notably Insensibility and Spring Offensive, can indeed be seriously discussed on the same plane as Book 12, lines 250-277 of Wordsworth's 1805, The Prelude, lines about the innate dignity and intelligence of the inarticulate and ill-educated, or as the grandly elegiac final chapter of George Eliot's Middlemarch, part threnody for old mistakes, part obard to the new dawn. Why should technical hostages to fortune, as I call them, are you sure you can hear me at the back? Okay. Why should technical hostages to fortune, as I call them, be of concern if the sentiment is agreeable to our contemporary sensibilities? To make some attempt at tackling that hypothetical question, requires me to refer once more to the Laura Riding Robert Graves, A Survey of Modernist Poetry, 1929, one of the earliest, if not the earliest, critical discussions to give due weight to the achievement of Isaac Rosenberg. The point I take up is on page 188, 
where they challenge the idea of inevitable progress in the arts. I quote, In this case, with modernist poetry seen and applauded as a part of the movement of civilization, the demands made upon it as such would become intensified. A world of plain readers hungering for up-to-date poetry would turn poetry into one of the gross industries. To return upon A.C. Bradley's essentially tragic fact, supposing poetry to have metamorphosed into one of the gross industries, the tragic fact remains in a sense self-division and intestinal warfare of the ethical substance, but only in a sense, and in a sense where ethical substance does not describe a substance or even an essence, as Bradley at least partly believes it does. And we are contemplating not so much a riven block as a whirlwind. And if I, and here I become inexcusably vatic, take it to heart that Morris's anarchical plutocracy is a term adequate to the conditions of 1883, as Bishop Jeremy Taylor's public discrecy is a term adequate to the cataclysmic events of mid-17th century England. Suppose I then try to envisage a poetry adequate, not even to engage, but merely to survive such conditions. What would that poetry resemble? Since our subject is war, with and without the pity, I propose now to refer to a system of modern tank design, and in what I trust is a sober and responsible fashion, draw from it certain salient features which appear to me to permit analogies to be drawn broadly with linguistics, narrowly with poetics. There is a defense system. It originated, I believe, with the Israeli Merkava, but is now ubiquitously employed, whereby the impact of an incoming projectile creates resistant pressures within the tank's own fuel system, so that the fuel, instead of igniting, as it did in all World War II tanks, especially the American Sherman, turns into a resistant medium pushing back at the projectile. Several of the phrases here I have taken from Patrick Wright's book, Tank, the Progress of a Monstrous War Machine, Faber 2000, page 325. Some who are professionally concerned with modern poetics envisage the typical modernist poem as an armored vehicle of the older World War II vintage, protected externally by, vul by vulnerable obscurantism, which can be broken to reveal what is left of a sensitive attitude. Others more radically argue that rhetorical armor should be done away with completely, that even the famous academic wit of the 50s movement poets is too much now to have to tackle. What I suppose I am envisaging is the kind of poem which would integrate its sensibility, its fuel, if you like, so completely with its formal eloquence that there would be no hole in the middle, no secret driving place, no cubbyhole in which the meaning squats, waiting to be hauled out and imprisoned in a critical paraphrase, or as we say, analysis. The meaning could never be the remains. Whatever the attitude, it would be entirely integrated in the texture. If strange things happen where she is, so that men say that graves open and the dead walk, or that futurity becomes a womb and the unborn are shed. Such portents are not to be wondered at, 
being tourbillions in time made by the strong pulling of her bladed mind through that ever-reluctant element. If strange things happen where she is, so that men say that graves open and the dead walk, or that futurity becomes a womb and the unborn are shed, such portents are not to be wondered at, being tourbillions in time made by the strong pulling of her bladed mind through that ever-reluctant element. That is a poem quoted in its entirety. It's by Robert Graves, and its title is On Portents, and it is as near as damn it to being armored all the way through. Ostensibly, it is about sexual power, probably the power exerted by Laura Riding on Robert Graves. In reality, it is like the majority, if not the totality, of fine poems about itself. The attitude is itself. It makes itself up as it goes along. I've seen no drafts. I'm speaking of the impact it makes. If you showed me drafts, it would make no difference to this assessment. How like Yeats I sound. Being tourbillions in time made by the strong pulling of her bladed mind through that ever-reluctant element. Tourbillion from the French tourbillon whirlwind, transferred sense, a whirling mass or system, a vortex, a whirl, an eddy, a whirlpool. First recorded use in this transferred sense, steel in the spectator, number 472. Each of them, the fixed stars, is a sun moving on its own axis in the center of its own vortex or tourbillon. And Graves' usage is noted in the OED entry as being of 1931. What Graves is using is the movement of and reaction of water to a marine turbine. As I've said, the attitude of Graves is not to be found dead in the seat of meaning after your critical laser missile has obliterated the obstruction of metaphor. Graves' attitude is the position of the poem, and the poem is simply itself. Every poem that profoundly moves us simply by being its eloquent self is simultaneously the strong pulling of the bladed mind, imaginative techniques, and that ever-reluctant element, experiences language. The poem is the tourbillion resulting from the interaction and this is just as true of a cavalier lyric, such as Lovelace's to Graciana dancing and singing, or Robert Burns' I Font Kiss, as it is of Yeats's The Second Coming, whereas John Stallworthy was the first to show, the Materia Poetica was peculiarly reluctant to take the strong pulling of the bladed mind, the creative semantic intelligence. And what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Slouches epitomizes what I'm intempt I am attempting to describe. How could you possibly paraphrase its significance? Yet how could it be deemed anything other than as absolutely right and on the spot? To adopt another phrase from Patrick Wright's book on the tank, it makes the projectile of our critical impertinence commit suicide. Now, none of this will carry much weight with someone who cannot accept to some degree the proposition that those destructive forces for which Bishop Jeremy Taylor at the time of the English Civil War coined the term public discrecy or for which Morris in 1883 coined his phrase anarchical plutocracy, and the knowledge of which Riding and Graves in 1927 envisaged the popularization of up-to-date poetry as one of the gross industries. Unless you can accept to some extent that for me these represent a type of pervading real damage condensed for argument's sake into a form of trope. 
There may be some who find it chilling that I can discuss poetics in terms of tropes taken from a killing machine. Uh, Keith Douglas, in his fine prose account of the 1942 North African desert campaign of World War II, Alamein to Zemzem, writes lyrically of the British tank of that period, the Crusader. This tank is the best-looking medium tank I ever saw. Whatever its shortcomings of performance, to see these tanks crossing country at speed was a thrill which seemed inexhaustible. Many times it encouraged us, and we were very proud of our crusaders, though we often had cause to curse them. Notice here that the poetics are pure aesthetics. I'm not calling Douglas an aesthete. He was no more an aesthete than Rosenberg, whom he so admired and learned from. But I'm saying that that particular pronouncement is pure aesthetics, divorced from function. The crusader is mechanically inefficient, but it looks good. Now, the poetics of the poetic vehicle I envisage is embedded in its technical proficiency. I am trying to say something intrinsic to the nature of poetic survival. There is a battle behind the battle in this lecture, and it is to do with a state of things that in some previous centuries was termed the battle of the books. I find myself increasingly wary of a form of poetics in which the poem becomes a mere conveyor of received opinion, sometimes in kit form, which can be unloaded and reassembled, but only in a critical thesis. I am troubled when certain words or phrases, such as Owen's pity, become like canisters, which when opened away from the poem release, I won't say gas, but an atmosphere which it is recommended one breathes, in which, by a dire oxymoron, the poetry is in the pity, becomes the equivalent of Skegness's so bracing. I am not happy in saying this. Um, I am embarrassed to speak formally about war poetry at all, sitting in comparative comfort, with a glass of wine and a good dinner awaiting me, making capital out of a record of men mutilated, burned alive, driven mad. But I repeat, the poetry had better not be in the pity, or it will not survive as poetry. Perhaps it doesn't survive. Perhaps even now it is only a concept, like contemporary international money. Perhaps it is, as it were, uh, a plastic card. I am omitting something that I was going to say about the origins of my ideas, which I trace, I'm doing a, a rough synopsis now, which I trace to what I think is Marshall McLuhan's finest work, which uh, sat unnoticed, virtually unnoticed, in the Cambridge University Library for about 50 years, uh, where my wife found it 25 or 30 years ago and brought it to my attention. It was belatedly put into print um, in 2005 by a small American press. Uh, and I do think that it, that, that it is his very best work. Uh, I'm leaping ahead to, as it were, a later scholar's synopsis of what McLuhan says about Thomas Nash, the, the Elizabethan prose writer, of course, as you know. So effectively does Nash's writing convey a sense of the intractable materiality of words and the unpredictable nature of his own stylistic enterprise that we come to imagine him continually present engaging even as we read with the animated unreliability of his own linguistic creations, the intractable materiality of words. 
Now, Wyndham Lewis, P. Wyndham Lewis, not to be confused with D.B. Wyndham Lewis, the great Wyndham Lewis, I'm sorry to say, just doesn't get it. To him, and I quote, Nash is a great prose writer, one of the greatest as far as sheer execution is concerned, and in that over-ornate, bustling field. Yet his emptiness has resulted in his work falling into neglect, which, if you read much of him, is not difficult to understand. His great appetite for words their punning potentialities along with the power of compressing them into pungent arabesques is admirable enough to have made him more remembered than he is. But certainly some instinct in posterity turned it away from this too physical, too merely high-spirited and muscular verbal performer. He tired it like a child with his empty energy, I suppose. Now, a couple of phrases in what Wyndham Lewis says of Nash. As far as ex sheer execution is concerned, a power of compressing them into pungent arabesques shows how very nearly Lewis came to grasping that quality in Nash, which Lorna Hudson, the scholar I was quoting above, rightly calls a sense of the intractable materiality of words. And his failure matters because he is one of our greatest writers of the Great War's aftermath. Nonetheless, with a frightful amount of energy running to waste in his writing, all his energy is in attack. He has no energy of defense and is driven too often to depict himself as if he were a self-caricature, a monstrous clown rather than a master of the world's clownishness. Where am I and what am I about? I suppose I'm about saying that a thoroughly ramist period such as our own requires for its creative sanity a core of anti-ramist writers of prose as well as poetry for whom the intractable materiality of words, the unpredictable nature of their handling of the material of vision is for them the ordinary measure of their days. Now, if I were linguistically competent to assess the poetics of Velimir Klebnikov, 1885-1922, or supremely of Josip Mandelstam, or just possibly Paul Celan, 1920-1970, I would have what I am tempted to call my Merkava poets, my poets armored to resist the hostile thrusts. But you see, the drawback of my position is that it cannot admit of translation. Undeterred by that discovery, um, I proceed. I've already referred briefly and in passing to the pioneering attention paid by Riding and Graves to the radical achievement of Isaac Rosenberg, killed some months before Owen, in the last year of the war. Riding and Graves say that he was one of the few poets who might have served as a fair challenge to sham modernism. A volume of his poems that appeared in 1922, edited by a well-known poet of the day, Gordon Bottomley, and with an introductory memoir by Lawrence Binion. Riding and Graves rightly contend that it was the fashion of presentation that ensured Rosenberg's continued obscurity. Binion, a man of immense goodwill, treated the exercise as an act of necessary piety towards a young man of promise killed in his country's service and with allowances made for what Binion calls the immaturities of style and taste. Riding and Graves term, term Bottomley and Binion safe poets, with the innuendo that it is the recognized, though tacit, social function of safe poets to stifle the unsafe at birth, if necessary by heaping praises in such a way that all evidence of dangerous novelty is smothered by conventional pietisms. Rosenberg had taken the trouble to write to Bottomley circa June 1916, two years before he was killed, six years before the appearance of the memorial volume, people are always telling me my work is promising, incomprehensible but promising, 
and all that sort of thing, and my meekness subsides before the patronizing knowingness. It seems, therefore, a redoubled callousness subsequently to bury that work along with its author, bright-eyed, thoroughly Jewish in type, as if the book as well as the man were in place in one of those beautifully tended imperial war graves commission plots in northern France and Flanders. Rosenberg's difficulty and challenge is that he absorbs our attack into the texture of his poetry, so that the poem itself, in addition to being its own eloquence, is also the record of our incomprehension. Take four lines from his verse play, Moses, first published in 1916 as a pamphlet at the poverty-stricken author's expense. These days, you find it offered at around $3,000 and upwards by rare book dealers. It took Rosenberg great effort to find the £2.10 necessary to print a hundred copies. The streaming vigors of his blood erupting from his halt tongue are like an anger thrust out of a madman's pitying, piteous craving for a monstrous, balked perfection. The streaming vigors of his blood erupting from his halt tongue are like an anger thrust out of a madman's piteous craving for a monstrous, balked perfection. What monstrous, balked perfection precisely? I don't know. What I do know, because the lines present the density of it, is that there is such a mental entity as perfection, like a tragic block, that it can be balked, frustrated, checked, thwarted, missed by error, that this failure is abnormal, outrageously wrong or absurd, that is monstrous, OED. The madman is mad either through the failure to find this perfection, his halt tongue, or else mad to have desired it in the first place, piteous craving. The writing is at once impersonal, objective. It works with etymologists that can now be looked up in the OED, as I have done and intensely subjective, incomprehensible but promising, and all that sort of thing. The utterance is uncompromisingly itself, at first sight intractable to synopsis, and yet open finally to verbal analysis, and open if not to us, then to the force fields of cultural shift and change. Rosenberg is actually much closer to being the poet of the prelude, book 12, lines 250, 277, than Owen is. Owen endeavors to speak on behalf of the inarticulate. Rosenberg comes thrusting up, and I think it's probably all right if that sounds phallic, from amidst the body of inarticulacy itself. And to recapitulate yet further, Rosenberg's language is indeed the ethical substance at war partly with itself, partly with us. I don't have any great anxiety that what I've said may lead you to believe that poetry is best considered as a shamanistic practice. I do not regard it as the proper function of poetry to cast the runes or place spells on it. It's noticeable how at public readings insecure poets attempt to recite in an enticing, hypnotic manner, and I wish they wouldn't. <laughs> I do, however, concur with the late Martin Seymour Smith when he claims that words are not the same as the things or qualities they denote, while at the same time the words are themselves things, the mysterious doubles of what they denote. I would even add that Seymour Smith is less mysterious about the business than is Eliot's exposition of the catalyst, in tradition and the individual talent. Seymour Smith's insistence is manifestly demonstrable. Eliot's is not. Eliot's catalyst remains within the sphere of alluring suggestiveness, whereas the four lines of Rosenberg that I've read to you are self-evidently what is to be declared. The words yield meaning readily to examination, but it is a baffled meaning. 
I've added to this issue... Well, I've, no, I've left it out, haven't I? So let's go on. Let, let, let me miss out another paragraph. The radical discovery of the Great War was its bafflement by language as well as by the mathematics of mass killing. Much has been written in the past 40 or 50 years regarding the total incomprehension that came between the front fighters of all three main Western Front armies uh, and the headquarters staffs and even more destructively families and home civics, town hall sentiments and the like. Right at the start, August, November 1914, Civilian and military assumptions had been more or less the same, though there were notable exceptions to this overview. Charles Sawley in his letters, Rosenberg in his letters, and Rupert Brooke. Rupert Brooke, in a letter he wrote on his return from the abortive Antwerp expedition in late 1914, on which occasion he had been on the fringes of action, and that letter should be read by all who, as it were, place him in somebody who had not seen action. Uh, of course, nothing of this appears in Brooks' beglorid sonnets, the 1914 sequence, written at about the same time as the letter. And, and Sawley was in the main unable to work his prose intelligence into his poetry, and Sawley was killed in 1915, age 20. But by and large, in August 1914, and for some time later, even perhaps up to about the point of the Somme debacle of July 1916, everyone in Britain and the British Expeditionary Force, the BEF, could describe what evil was. And even the intelligent Ford Maddox Hoofer, later Ford, in a book published in 1915, subscribed to the opinion, evil was Prussianism. And in his book, When Blood is Their Argument, it was still possible for Hoofer, who went on to write the magnificent war tetralogy of novels, Parade's End, to describe as, and I quote, an indelible stain upon English civilization, the fact that 45 years earlier, in 1870, Thomas Carlyle had written a letter to the Times saying that he was glad that France had been defeated in the Franco-Prussian War of that year. An indelible stain upon English civilization. A letter to the Times? <laughs> By 1919, the year of the macabre victory parade through Paris, Evil was something other than Prussianism, though what it was struck people then and now is not easy to come to grips with. It was something at once hyperactive and catatonic, amorphous yet capable of exerting particular pressure. Individual people suffered it doubly, both in themselves uniquely and as ciphers in a vast and indiscriminate mass. I think I may be taking another five minutes, if you can bear with me, five or six minutes. Very difficult to cut at this stage. It is, of course, a fact that a visual language capable of registering the dethronement of Bradleyan monumental ethical reason, which was one of the many disrelated outcomes of 1914-18, existed immediately prior to the outbreak of that war. I cite Wyndham Lewis's portfolio of vorticist drawings, Timon of Athens, published in 1913, the unrecollected masterpiece in a manner of speaking of the 20s. I risk calling Wyndham Lewis the lost master orator of the 1920s, not only because of Timon of Athens, nearly a decade old by 1920, but also because of the three prose tracts, which grew out of his war experiences. The Art of Being Ruled, 1926. The Lion and the Fox, 1927. A Study of the Hero in the Plays of Shakespeare, with particular reference to Coriolanus. And Time and Western Man, also 1927. And as I've already said, his single volume of poetry, One Way Song, which came out in 1933. Listen to these four lines. I sabotage the sentence 
With me is the naked word, I spike the verb. All parts of speech are pushed over on their backs. I am the master of all that is half-uttered and imperfectly heard. Return with me where I am crying out with the gorilla and the bird. I say lost master orator because he lost his potentially quite considerable audience sometime in the early 30s by a mixture of vanity, innocence, and bad tactics. As I've already remarked, all his energy went into attack. He had no energy of defense except the fatal device of self-caricature. Rosenberg, had he not been killed in action in April 1918, would probably have been greater, more intelligent, with more energy of defense, which would allow him to open to circumstance in ways that Lewis could not permit himself to be open. Lewis's politics were of the right, so were the politics of David Jones, as were those of the author of Tarka the Otter and Selah the Salmon. So stood the political sympathies of Saunders Lewis, that fierce champion of Welsh nationalism. All four were old front fighters who'd come to believe that their true kinship was with the French and German front fighters and that their natural enemies were to be found among the British, French, and German general staffs and the civilian profiteers of all three nations. But, I mean, you know this. It's, it's, it's been on the records for many years. Quote, We know how in any struggle between individuals or groups a great burden lifts when either side in that struggle, by gesture or utterance, admits some abstract excellence in the enemy, whom it is their duty to oppose. David Jones wrote that in a too-little-known essay, Art in Relation to War, written during the middle years of the Second World War, 1942-3, revised 1946. It remained unpublished till 1978. An undated footnote in the published text records Jones's chagrin that when Winston Churchill paid tribute to Erwin Rommel's brilliant handling of the German Africa Corps in the Libyan-Tunisian campaign, Churchill's gesture was resented by ignoble minds in this country. This essay takes up in broader terms the complex simplicities or simple complexities of the magnificent dedication page to In Parenthesis, 1937, which reads as if to be incised on stone and can stand even by itself as one of the greatest utterances to come out of the Great War. This writing is for my friends. In mind of all common and hidden men and of the secret princes, and to the memory of those with me in the covert and in the open, from the black wall, the broadway, the causeway, the cut, the flats, the levels, the environs, and those others, from Treath Vaur and Long Mountain, the Hendref and the Havad, the Pentrepandi and the Taran, the Mylors, the boundary walls and number four working, especially Private R.A. Lewis Gunner from Newport, Monmouthshire, killed in action in the Bozing sector northwest of Ypres sometime in the winter 1916-17, and to the bearded infantry who exchanged their long loaves with us at a sector's barrier, and to the enemy front fighters who shared our pains against whom we found ourselves by misadventure. It does not harm the nobility of this incised stone, which in effect it is, if we remind ourselves that one of those enemy front fighters who shared our pains was an NCO named Adolf Hitler, who could have been killed at any one moment in any one day but wasn't, and whose conduct in action earned him the Iron Cross, 
And it was, of course, with just such associations of politically disaffected German front fighters, groups like the Freikorps, that the agitator Hitler first came to notice in the early 1920s. The specific density of Jones's memorial dedication is in itself greater than that of any one page in, say, Auden's The Orators, an English study, 1932, revised 1934. Splendid, though that work is. The Orators is the best we have, next to, in parenthesis, next to Benjamin Britten's early masterpiece, Our Hunting Fathers, to a text by Auden, 1936. And in the absence of a completed Coriolan from T.S. Eliot, I confess myself to be haunted by that failure of Eliot's to complete that post-First World War work. If only he could have brought it up to, say, 16 sections. That's not asking too much, is it? 16 sections to match Lewis's portfolio of 16 drawings, Timon of Athens, Timon of Athens, and Coriolan. What a superb diptych might we now be celebrating. Even as the smoke drifts northwesters from ruined Athens to mingle with the smoke that drifts southeast from ruined Iceland, to conjoin symbolically in a gyre, a tourbillion, or a vortex, smack over the flagrant Bundestag. Thank you.